1: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies. My name is Ryan Stackhouse, and today we're joined by Nathan Stoltzfus to talk about his new book, Hitler's Compromises, Coercion and Consensus in Nazi Germany. Nathan is the Rintels Professor of Holocaust Studies at Florida State University and the author and co-editor of several books on the Third Reich specifically and power of average people more broadly. Hitler's Compromises were published in 2016 by Yale University Press and examines dissent and compromise under the Nazis a somewhat unexpected, but as we shall hear, vital part of Hitler's dictatorship. On a personal note, Nathan was on my dissertation committee back while I was a Walbold fellow at Florida State University, so it's a real pleasure to have him join us today. Without further ado, Nathan, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Ryan. I'm happy to be here. Well, before we get into the book today, tell us a bit about yourself. How did you become a historian?
0: Oh, I always start, I think uh, it was an end roundabout route really. In college, I had two majors. I was uh, English and then I added history uh, major. After college, I worked in advocacy and government in D.C. for several years and I returned to grad school as a divinity school student. I never really intended to make a career around religion and I learned that I really preferred the epistemology of the history discipline. I liked the methodology of footnotes. Uh, And, uh, well, a really important event in Div School was that I met uh, Gene Sharp. His death has recently been uh, marked in obituaries around the world in major newspapers. One day in Div School, uh, Gene Sharp was featured at the top of the front page of the Harvard Gazette, and I uh, went to the nearest phone, the university phone. This was 1983. And uh, I called up and uh, met uh, Sharp later that day. And uh, Sharp did more to shape the questions I ask of history uh, more than anyone else before since. And uh, he thought that uh, scholarship and thinking in general overlooked popular sources of power. At least he wanted to examine how it also percolated up from below and not just uh, was meted out exclusively from the top. And uh, I uh, entered the study of history after social changes had already ushered in social history. Uh, Sharp's perspective was shaped by earlier strategists of nonviolence, especially Mahatma Gandhi. I did think, and I still think, that uh, power wrung from brute force is probably overrated. At least in, in in some circumstances, there are ample examples, at least of recent failed and counterproductive wars by massive military powers. So I took this uh, bottom-up perspective as a historian.
1: How did you come to write Hitler's Compromises out of this background?
0: Well, that uh, I, I began research with the Fulbright. Um, and uh, it, recently, Sybil Milton had just uh, published a chapter in a book, uh, When Biology Was Destiny, And she noted two striking protests in Nazi uh, history on the home front in 1943. Uh, The first one was the Rosenstrasse protest in February, March. The second was the Witten protest of October, 1943. And in both cases, as Milton noted, the regime appeased the women protesting. And she concluded her uh, brief uh, paragraphs on these protests by encouraging a systematic study a protest in Nazi Germany. Uh, that's how I took it, at least. She mentioned that none had been done. And in fact, just the previous year in 1983, uh, Ian Kershaw published his uh, uh, very, uh, I guess, earth-shaking book, at least for uh, Nazi studies on popular opinion in Bavaria. And that chronicled the course and impact of several significant popular protests in Bavaria alone. In these cases also the populace prevailed. These are different cases, Hitler backed down. And officials whose uh, clumsy policies had resulted in these public outbursts uh, lost power. So given these striking examples and Hitler's uh, striking response, Kershaw's work seemed to call out for further work on protest. Uh, Certainly what was going on in the rest of Germany if there was so much of interest in Bavaria why wasn't this done? It wasn't as if there weren't early histories to show uh, that uh, that this social history was was uh, was important. I contrasted, and as I began, uh, especially uh, by 1989, when the wall fell, you could contrast the almost. Uh, exclusive focus on bottom up history of the GDR dictatorship with with what had happened with Third Reich history, of course, these are very different dictatorships, but uh, I think the difference in response made even more difference than the, the types of dictatorships in terms of the histories that were were wrote. In a way, the dally was cast early on without taking bottom-up perspectives into account. The fate of these uh, Third Reich studies, I think, has been very heavily influenced Uh, at least uh, significantly influenced by the set of questions prevailing after World War II. Of course, the Nuremberg trials had something to do with that, the search for a conspiracy, the top-down approach to crime uh, that the law provided and was ready to deal with. There were, as I was just mentioning, some important early sources on bottom-up history. I think, uh, for example, of Hans Bernd is To the Bitter End, in German, published already in 1946. That uh, was a former Gestapo man who wrote, already a year after the war, concluded that the Gleichschaltung process, that's the Nazi alignment, in early 1933. He wrote that it was initiated by Nazis, of course, but then that masses of Germans rushed in voluntar- voluntarily to please the new power. And there were other uh, histories, I think, that came to be overshadowed or overlooked uh, by top-down historians. Gusevius's point about uh, voluntary compliance highlights that first principle in Timothy Snyder's important latest book, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century. Uh, His first point is, do not obey in advance. This is what uh, Geisebius was saying that the Germans were doing, anticipating what power wanted and rushing to fulfill it in advance of orders. Recently, uh, some historians have written that this uh, bottom-up history has overstayed its welcome. It's gone too far. The sales need to be uh, reset to tack back toward the old top-down perspectives. And that from that perspective, all you need to know, or at least the main thing you need to know, is that the regime ruled by terror and intimidation. Gleischautung was strictly top-down business, or mostly, uh, certainly uh, different forms of intimidation and terror uh, caused the, the and, and and not voluntary actions in advance well uh i think it's the simplicity of the idea of uh of power from the top and the maybe the made for image or tv picture of massive force and and uh trembling subjects that uh, it, it makes it hard to uh to deal with nuance, uh, but the uh, sh- shades of gray in this case, Nazi history, uh, and nuance is really where where uh, where we can find perspectives that are important for informing our 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 own uh, experiences today.
1: Well, you begin the book by looking at Hitler's rise to power and the legal course policy as foreshadowing his entire approach to his relationship with the German people.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think uh, it's important not to look at history either from the top down or bottom up, or at least important not to actually try to fit histories in from one side or the other. Uh, Rather, what's important is to investigate what really happened. And uh, in this case, uh, why did did the dictator Hitler respond as he did? Uh, he certainly appears as a strategist and not just a raging carpet-biter, not just a charismatic leader. And uh, he did this not just because of his false memories in World War One about World War I, uh, about how unrest had caused all of the defeat, as if, for example, the American entry into the war made no difference, but... Also, uh, Hitler was driven to take the people into account because he wanted to remold them in his own image and uh, have them thinking exactly like he did. So, uh, absolutely, this is uh, prefigured already in the first chapter uh, titled Never Deprive the Folk of Its Gods, I think it was. The point was that uh, this quote came up uh, came up when Hitler was running for president against uh, uh, Hindenburg uh, in 1932, and was criticized by one of his adjutants for rather blindly or uh, boldly criticizing Hindenburg. And uh, and Hinden and, and Hitler ends up agreeing and says, "Yes, uh, Hindenburg's a kind of a folk god, and you can't deprive the people of that." Uh, so. Uh, Coming to power the legal way, that's just one point. The way he planned to come to power the legal way was through a mass movement. How do you get the masses behind you? Most people attribute that, I think uh, it's certainly not wrong, to Hitler's failed coup, the 1923 Beer Hall Putsch, which uh, was kind of uh, laughable in the end. But uh, certainly uh, Hitler Hitler had the idea before about the importance of collective action. Uh, There is the question about how much or to what extent he flirted with socialism down in Munich uh, just after the war. Uh, But certainly uh, this became, after 1923, put down in Mein Kampf his basis for taking power was going to be uh, building a mass movement. So it turned out that the Weimar system of carefully calculating the vote and recording who voted how, uh, at least by region and to some extent by other demographics, was suited very well for Hitler's purposes of uh, strategizing how to build a popular movement. Of course, uh, police protection, uh, the democratic structures that allowed – his party to flourish, Hitler. I mean, excuse me. Goebbels even called on the police once to uh, break up an an SA strike in his office in Berlin. Uh, this kind of thing, uh, also making the Weimar Republic system and context quite. Uh, amenable to Hitler's uh, drive to begin a mass movement. Of course, the basic backdrop is the circumstances of World War I, the disorientation, the disillusionment, magnified by the great inflation and then even more so by the the Great Depression. But uh, the communists really played into Hitler's hand, becoming more... Focused during the Weimar Republic on actual uh, use of force to uh, force their revolution, declaring the police, for example, as uh, total enemies all the time. Whereas Hitler was always open to other strategies and to other uh, uh, perceptions of how people could be influenced than uh, through uh, the barrel of a gun. After the party comes to power... In the early years,
1: there is this dispute with the Catholic and the Protestant churches in Germany. In this first phase, you specifically look at the confrontation with the bishops. Could you tell us a bit more about where this comes from and how the official response embodies this sort of willingness to compromise and work with the people?
0: Yes. Well, I'll start with the first part of the question. This was the opposition in the southern rim of Germany in Wurttemberg and in Bavaria, by especially Bishop Hans Miser, but also Theophil uh, Theophil Worm in Wurttemberg, where they opposed Hitler's idea about a, a Reich church. According to Albert Speer, Hitler had rhapsodized before, uh, taking power about how great it would be to be uh, a kind of a corollary of Henry VIII, what Henry VIII had done in Britain uh, with the church he wanted to do in Germany, that is establish a single Protestant church. And uh, this was going very well along with the other aspects of Gleichschaltung in 1933, Uh, And uh, the overwhelming number of bishops at one point, it was only Worm and Miser who were opposing this Reich Church. Obviously, uh, Hitler was interested in all the central down forms of uh, governance, and uh, that he could uh, find. This was the uh, somewhat of an equivalent of Gleichschaltung for uh, for the churches. The churches, uh, Hitler, uh, always wanted to kind of uh, deceive into following him until everybody agreed that he really had a better, a better way of dealing with uh, with realities and uh, and new rituals and ways of thinking, attitudes and practices than the old Christian ones. And so uh, this was really tough for him. Hitler saw the church not like a political party, which, were, which could be really decapitated from the top. They were in opposition with each other. The organizations could be attacked. A few leaders thrown in jail. Uh, whereas uh, Christianity so pervaded German consciousness, uh, whether Protestant or, or Catholic, that Hitler really uh, was aware, as he mentioned already in, in Mein Kampf, and he supplements this uh, in his table talks about how challenging it is, how long it will take to really reconfigure the German way of thinking so that everybody thinks in a uh, in, 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 like a Nazi, everybody acts like a Nazi, even if no one's looking Uh, And this chapter is about how bishops wield power, similar to this mentioned Führung idea that the Germans had about how, I mean, that the Nazis had, and it's an idea that precedes the Nazis, about, uh, you know, people management, really. And and that includes uh, certainly getting to their hearts and minds, mobilizing their their thoughts, inspiring them. Uh, the way that bishops really did, of course, the bishops had a long tradition to stand on, and they had an existing bureaucracy. Hitler was uh, just starting up, but uh, he made extraordinarily rapid progress very quickly, and of course, uh, most church leaders, including those like Niemüller, who uh, soon began to oppose him. Actually, welcomed his rule, thinking that uh, Germany <clears throat> might need a spiritual reawakening of uh, the kind that the Nazis might be able to help with. So, uh, certainly, Miser and 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 Worm welcomed welcomed uh, Hitler along with the other uh, Catholic bishops and uh, not to mention the the Protestant bishops. But uh, they opposed the Reich Church not. For theological reasons, but simply because they liked the independence of their southern traditions. Uh, at least that's what they said. And 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 Miser, the leader of this, was very careful to always say that he. Did not oppose Hitler. In fact, Hitler would be on their side, of course. Hitler, Hitler uh, had to keep his image so broad that all the Germans and all the different corners and pockets culturally of Germany somehow thought that uh, Hitler had the same Germany in mind that they had. He's a German Führer, Führer, and uh, obviously uh, he uh, he would understand uh, what they wanted. So, uh, so it, beca- it was it was. Uh, a- a- not uh, not unusual. Also, the uh, uh, people in a later chapter, uh, some of them uh, protesting crucifixes, were convinced that Hitler would be on their side. In other words, Hitler's need... To maintain a very broad image, not well defined, uh, actually allowed some dissent, or at least it encouraged it. We don't know whether it would have gone on anyway, but uh, Miser must have known that Hitler uh, was certainly uh, uh, not on their side. Every. You know Hitler had met with them uh, uh, as bishops in early nineteen thirty four and made it very clear uh, but nevertheless, when in making public statements, miser was very careful not to say he was challenging Hitler but that the great Hitler would certainly be on their side very interesting, very important part of his uh, his display of tactical not only a tactical awareness of how the Nazis had proceeded but also of the overall Uh, uh, structures of of the importance of of the leader in his own territory and in Worm's territory. uh, The battle for the Reich Church went on for a year uh, and more. Between these two bishops and and regional Nazi leaders, with all their control of the press uh, and other sanctions, uh, they simply were not able to make any inroads at all on uh, on the uh, uh, the belief of the people, the the need for the people to have their bishops and and their their desire to believe in them, uh, and even the uh, house arrest of these two bishops by October nineteen. Uh, 34 uh, led to even greater unrest, and these uh, regional leaders uh, were uh, unable to resolve this because uh, they needed directly above them was Hitler, so they had to go to Hitler for a Fuhrer decision. Hitler had to decide. Now, this was, uh, it has to be said, early in the Reich. It was uh, not after Hitler had uh, consolidated as much power as he had. But that said, it's very important, I think, to note that the Night of the Long Knives, the Rome Purge, had just happened in, uh, in June. At the end of June and early July, the repercussions, uh, this was only uh, several months before. And uh, given what we know, we can be... Uh, pretty sure that Miser and Worm and the others would have uh, been behind uh, Hitler's uh, Rome purge, probably agreed with it at least. Uh, What the main point is, though, is that they didn't feel themselves threatened in the same way, I don't think. Uh, Hitler... was not going to approach uh, the problem of Gleischautung with the churches the same way he did with uh, political parties. He wanted to really get to the bottom and change people's attitudes, uh, especially through his leadership. Uh, But sometimes, in order to keep the people following him, he was willing to double back and uh, uh, start again uh, toward his goals after moving laterally, perhaps, not changing his ideology, not changing his goals, but being very opportunistic tactically. So
1: as we're moving toward the war, you're shifting focus from the churches to other institutions that could conceivably threaten Hitler's power. And specifically, you look at the army and the the general staff. Why do Hitler and the army come to loggerheads? And what, how does he manage to resolve this situation?
0: The reason I have this chapter on the military is not so much that it's an example of, of protest, as some have complained, uh, wondering why it's in a book, as to show the contrast of a, one of the reasons is to show a contrast of a general's power with that of a bishop's power. Another reason is to show how Hitler does not just rely on brute force to resolve this controversy, The uh, military, of course, is cowed already with the remilitarization of the Rhineland in March 1936. There, they seem to have uh, uh, given way to Hitler's desire to go in when they could see no reason for doing so. Uh, and remilitarize, feeling quite certain, if not uh, almost certain, that France would come out with its more than 30 divisions, and and uh, Germans would have to retreat, fighting with police help, as Hitler had had ordered. It was. Uh, 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 and a very interesting study in how uh, a third reason for the chapter is to show how Hitler had a different stake, or at least his stake being the same was uh, approached differently, achieving his aims, his image, uh, controlling his image. This was one of the main ways that he ruled, if not the main way, and uh, his image was in in dire need of uh, of being refurbished, uh, overhauled uh, that winter uh, of uh, 35, 36, especially the Catholics apparently were unhappy, Uh, food sources were low, Hitler realigns the budget so that money that had been allotted to the military would go to purchasing imported foodstuffs. And uh, uh, true to a form, Hitler is aware of psychological and not just material ways of leading. And he wanted to uh, go in with uh, a very big display of uh, Fuhrer power and and uh, the uh fur rectitude. The generals of course and even uh Goebbels and Goering were telling him there's no no hurry to remilitarize the Rhineland. We just let it happen in time. There was no there was no military purpose. Uh the strategic purpose for Hitler was uh of putting his uh his image on an even higher pedestal and it certainly worked uh, the, and, and the the the, uh, the army staff was surprised the French didn't come out. They were perplexed. But uh, after that, they totally conceded the field of uh, political strategizing to uh, Hitler. They had already begun to do that before. Uh, in 1938, of course, uh, Hitler shows that this is the case with the Blomberg-Fritz crisis, Blomberg is uh written off through A moral scandal, having married his wife, who turned out to be a former prostitute, at least the Nazis exploited that uh, to embarrass him. Hitler did give him the chance to uh, get a divorce and uh, uh, continue in his job, but Blomberg chose uh, to remain married at that point. And then, of course, the question followed who would replace him. Fritz is the one that uh, was so widely respected and that many of the uh, top military people wanted— and this scandal about Fritz as a uh, homosexual was manufactured, another uh, moral scandal uh, that uh, Hitler managed through the press and his prestige, so that uh, uh, people were, were not uh, were no longer you no longer needed a Stalin type of purge or a Rome a Rome purge you uh hitler had uh, other ways that he preferred actually uh exercising authority uh through means other than brute force this also came through in the first chapter where where hitler was managing the sa who uh, so many of them including some pretty powerful leaders of the sa in rome himself at the end wanted to take power by uh, attempting another coup and hitler without uh Uh, without threatening uh, force, uh, really primarily with the authority that he had somehow managed to accrue through uh, uh, people's willingness to believe in him, was able to uh, exercise authority uh so that there wasn't a second coup attempt uh without force and this uh shows again Hitler's ability to rule uh as a figure of authority Hitler wanted not just power but he wanted authority and uh, the chapter uh is in there to show That he had that, but to maintain that authority, he really needed to maintain the forward momentum of his movement. This was something very important to him, that the movement should not falter, should not uh, slow, or certainly not uh, begin to unravel. After all, Hitler had seen how quickly he himself was able to uh, get a new movement in place and to uh, dislodge the old order and then replace it.
1: So... In the first chapters, you're looking at these comparisons of authority with church leaders and then with military leaders. Later on, and you you already already pointed toward it, there is a move away from a direct confrontation, at least with church leaders, to nibbling around the edges with issues like the placement of crucifixes in classrooms. I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about that.
0: Yes. I had first a chapter on uh, bishop Sproul, I think and how and how protest was important for the Nazis themselves. I think it was uh Epp, the Bavarian minister president who during the crucifix decree protest in Bavaria, uh during the war in nineteen forty one, was fuming that uh uh, the church was using Nazi tactics. That's how closely uh, the big early Nazi uh, national socialists identified their movement with, with controlling images, which is done through uh, streets, the mobilization and display of opinion on the streets. And uh, the chapter on Bishop Sproul, who is often held up as the uh, example of even a bishop being uh, punished by the regime for insubordination, uh, is there uh, to show how important uh, a protest was for the regime, how important Hitler's idea of authority was. Hitler, uh, in, in January of 1938, I believe, already had a, uh, an indictment, or at least a prosecutor had... Uh, had, uh, had the paperwork uh, submitted to uh, move toward an indictment of Bishop Sproul, and Hitler apparently uh, made a uh Explicit decision not to move against him with the courts, but to move against him with, with popular protest, uh, much the way that Miser and Worm had successfully opposed the Reich Church with their mobilization of the uh, of their faithful. Uh, Hitler now wanted to show that this could be reversed with his party members. That got out of hand, despite the repeated. Warnings of the uh, regional and local officials not to use violence, these protesters, uh, Nazis, uh, put up against against Bishop Sproul, meeting out in front of his house, uh, soon uh, uh, broke into the house and uh, did some damage. And uh, it uh, it began to uh, uh, do exactly what the uh, party leaders feared, and that was make a martyr out of the bishop. As long as people weren't going in and, and, and roughing them up uh, and destroying property, uh this seemed to be working but it's, uh, when this happened then counter protests for for bishop Sproul uh occurred uh in front of his house or after the church uh, ceremony maybe on the way from church to his house so uh, uh so this is a, uh, uh, just an illustration of, uh, of the kind of authority that Hitler uh, was interested in. His idea of uh, law was uh, the people acting in such a way that they embodied Nazi principles so that anybody who fell out of line would be automatically uh, chagrined, shamed back into place or uh, simply uh, exiled or sh- through being shunned. Well I know that you've talked before about the example of the
1: the the French in in bars in the Rhineland and this idea of shunning and creating norms. Uh perhaps you could say a little bit more about that.
0: Yeah, well that was uh I, I do emphasize that Hitler was not just interested in preventing unrest. That's been uh, uh mentioned a lot, but that uh he was uh caused to back down from protest because he was interested really in changing attitudes and molding these german people the image i use is of a dance uh, it's a malevolent leader of course of a dance conducting the people across the floor from their traditional beliefs to exclusively Nazi perspectives uh, if you can imagine that uh, but you know the the point is that Hitler you know if the people falter if they stumble if they're too slow he doesn't want to lead without them He's he, he can't go on with the dance without the people so he's got to keep the people with them and his concept of a mass movement of course that's not ditched uh, When he gains power and is able to exercise force, Uh, brutality is exercised with uh, bottomless uh, vigor uh, against, uh, you know, uh, certainly the Jews, uh, occupied enemies at war and in war, uh, social outsiders. But toward the people that uh, Hitler is interested in, in, ruling and molding and acting on his behalf, he really wants to change their attitude. So this is the uh, uh, this is the dance of of changing norms. Of uh, and uh, in February of 1934, in his rather well-known speech to the Gauleiters, of which we have some notes. Uh, he is saying that by the time his successor takes power, uh, national socialism has to be so well uh, ingrained that anybody considering resistance will see that it's impossible. They'll see that uh, they'll have to overthrow society and not just uh, the leader at the top. In other words, Hitler certainly did want a total state, but he wanted to build it on a foundation of a total society. And that, that, meant cha- that meant working with the norms. And, and of course, an important way to do that was with the appearance of norms. Of course, cutting off all opposition with force and making only one party uh, available as a means for a political career uh, uh, monopolizing uh, social status and uh, all kinds of things that the party did uh, certainly helped to shape these norms. The SS was supposed to be an elite force. For example, already I think in the mid 30s, the SS was uh, you know had higher standards of marriage than the average person. They were forbidden to have. Uh, friendly relationships with Jews already in the mid 30s. That became a, a, a regulation, a law for uh, Germans generally in, in late 1941. So uh, there were different engines of this uh, attempt to uh, shape the norms. The biggest one, I think, was simply Hitler's uh, huge prestige. As this leader who was showing them how others paled in contrast the charismatic factor that others had failed during the Weimar Republic to solve Germany's problems and he had not only solved them but was rapidly taking Germany back to where uh, this kind of uh, national pride they thought Germany that befitted Germany so uh, but there were others too uh, including the uh, you know the the Nazi uh, display of totalitarian leadership, uh, masses of people with one voice, uh, different ways. But Hitler was definitely interested in, in shaping the norms of society. A fine example of what you're talking about right there is this chapter
1: that you have on the euthanasia program, the T4 program, and the confrontation between the population and the regime over attitudes toward death. You talk about it as a search to retain popular legitimacy, essentially. Could you tell us a bit more about this?
0: Yes, it's interesting. The Nazis, when they talked about legitimacy, they always talked about popular legitimacy. They claimed from the beginning that they were, uh, and of course, as fascists do, uh, they were trying to shape the opinion by saying they were representing it, by making it appear as though they represented everyone. But certainly the interesting part is that they really thought that uh that uh, the best the best representation of legitimacy for them was their popularity was their representation of of popular will in in policies and uh maintaining this uh, involved some compromise Hitler never wanted to cross the line where dissent was public this was Part of the deception of appearances, social psychologists have a fine term. I think it's pluralistic ignorance, where if if you're unaware that anybody thinks like you do, it's very hard to maintain that. If, If you're dissenting, if you're in opposition, you don't see any... Any signs of it uh, you, you become very quickly isolated. another uh, popular method of the regime to isolate the enemy before going in with uh, with force just to remove the person uh, as an enemy as a fringe uh, enemy on the fringes. so uh, isolation of, uh, opinions, uh, making it look like these are outside opinions. Certainly, uh, dissent to the point where people were willing to come out on the street and express it was, uh, was very significant, something the regime, uh, really preferred never to admit. We have different examples. Certainly, the crucifix decrees provide examples where uh, the regime says, uh, you know, we're not going to have any press about this. We're not going to have uh, any any reports on either this uh, protest or anything that happens in in the future was one of the results of the 1936 uh, Kloppenberg-Oldenberg uh, protest about crucifixes. And uh, in 1943 as well, there's a kind kind of a popular outburst among uh, people following the arrest of uh, a soldier that uh, apparently was popular. Women gathered the uh, SD report says three to four hundred and threatened the officer who arrested him so that he had to flee into the streetcar. Uh, and uh, the result was, according to the SD report, that they had to have a meeting of the uh, women's organization, Nazi women's organization, to set the story straight and to publish uh, reports saying that there never had been any uh, any dissent. So uh, certainly documents about dissent were also Uh, destroyed. We're fortunate to have the SD reports on some of the protests, but we certainly don't have it on all of them.
1: As you you talk about these popular protests, we move on in the book into the war and really the effects that it begins to have on the population. The quote that you use from Goebbels is that the German people always
0: seem to be able to find the soft spot of the regime. That's an extraordinary passage. I don't want to... uh, overestimate the amount of popular protest because uh, first of all the regime was popular secondly uh, you know of course there was terror and any kind of uh, collective gathering on the streets was was uh, was against the law certainly uh, except for these uh, traditional church processions that was done almost immediately when uh, when Goebbels came in and, and founded the Ministry of Propaganda. But there were enough, uh, and especially in 1943, at the end of which, uh, Goebbels, in November the 2nd, I believe it was, writes this. Entry in his diary that says the people have found the soft spot, and then he talks about, you know, if we're given to the streets all the time, uh, then the people will be uh, forcing their will on us instead of the other way around. Now, in in 1943, uh, there was uh, the Rosenstrasse protest in February and March, where Goebbels uh, explicitly uh, decides to mitigate uh, the protest uh, to just uh, take away the reason for it by releasing intermarried Jews, uh, as he writes in his diary. He plans to do it all the more thoroughly later, and then he goes uh, three days later. Uh, he talks to Guter about it, in, as he says in his diaries, uh, and then he goes to uh to uh, Hitler on March the 9th, and Hitler understands that there were these psychological problems. And uh, I took this to Guterer after the war, and he said, yes, that meant that Goebbels uh, went to uh, uh, Hitler, and Hitler approved of his uh, decision to release the intermarried Jews, but he still had the mandate to, uh, of course, make uh, Berlin free of Jews. Well, a a month after this, there is an SD report that in April 1943, in the outskirts of Dortmund, there is this arrest, which I just described, of a soldier uh, who uh, uh, women gather around three to 400 according to this, uh, this description. And they say, uh, gept uns unser Männer wieder. Uh, that's the same call that had made the Rosenstrasse protest, uh, a protest a protest. This was a chant that the women called out together Give us our husbands back. And here they are, it's incongruous given that only one man was arrested. Of course, this could be also interpreted uh, from the German as, give us our men back. Or, uh, uh, but uh, the fact that this was repeated according to the SD indicates uh, that uh, uh, that That there were people in in Dortmund who had heard of this uh, protest, at least it 's likely and quite likely if they were repeating the same uh, phrase in this uh, incongruous uh, context give us our men back. Uh, And then uh, what really sparked uh, Goebbels' entry was a a, a protest by several hundred women. We do have the uh, more full SD report on this. Uh, I think the date is November the 18th uh, when they report on this. Uh, Goebbels writes in his diary about it on November the 2nd. These women... Uh, revolt against their uh, Gauleiter their Nazi leaders' uh, decision that they can't receive their rations anywhere except in the evacuation sites where they are where they've been sent to avoid the Allied bombing. and uh, they come back to their uh, to their homes in Witten in the Ruhr area. Some of their uh, husbands uh, are still working there. The rule is that if you're not contributing uh, in uh, to to uh, the war industry, that you have to be evacuated. But they keep returning. And this gal says, well, we can't use uh, police force, but what I'll do is I'll just uh, give them their food rations only in Baden, where they're supposed to be, not here in Witten. They'll have to go out to the countryside. And these women... Uh, this must have been a stage protest, unlike others, uh that seem to have just developed uh spontaneously, came out in one day, uh s- several hundred, and uh some of the things that the SD records them saying amount to uh, uh to treason, not just to like give us our uh rations right here, but uh they are you know uh if you're going to uh uh you know, uh, if we're going to be killed by bombs, you know, it's one thing or the other, they might as well shoot us. We, uh, this is what's important to us, in other words, family was important to them. And, uh, And uh, so the question was uh, for Goebbels how to deal with this. And on November the 2nd, he writes that, uh, and of course the women got their way uh, in various uh, various forms. Some of them uh, signed up to do work, which would allow them to uh, be back there. Uh, But uh, the bottom line was in January uh, in 1944, When Goebbels went to Hitler to get a Fuhrer decision and Hitler says, no, this is not the appropriate means, it's not uh, the way that National Socialism does it. Uh, and you can't even use this soft coercion method of manipulating uh, food ration distribution, let alone police force, because what you Galilei should be doing is educating the people so they understand and that they uh, and that they understand and go along with uh, national socialism voluntarily. I have a sub-thesis there that it seems that Hitler, and this needs more investigation, that Hitler becomes more reluctant to use force against his people when he's Losing the war uh, than when he's and when he's winning, when he's really delivering. And Goebbels says this much after the f- victory over France. Uh, you know, he tells his ga- the other Galiters, now at moments like this we can move in with greater force uh, and use of force. Uh, So uh, uh, it's moments of victory when the regime uh, has consolidated its support at the highest degree that it can really uh, move against the fringes. That seems to be a principle. Now, what's so striking about Goebbels' uh, entry in November the 2nd is that he's saying that uh, the people have learned that protest is a form – by which they can force the regime's hand And he complains that if you give in once, you'll lose uh, some authority. If you give in twice, you'll lose more authority. And you keep on doing that, you'll lose all authority. And uh, he said, this is the road the uh, regime is currently on. He says, "Uh, some people question whether force works. Of course it works. Uh, You just lay down the laws about, uh, and every society has this. Uh, Here's a line. Don't cross it or you'll uh, go to jail or be executed or whatever. Of course, the Nazis had a very different line but he says just just say where the line is and make sure that it's enforced and that people see it being enforced uh, so uh, but then he goes on in that same uh uh, uh diary entry, I think, to say what is the, uh, what, what is the appropriate means, the eignete means for national socialism. And uh, so everything that you can do with force is not, is not done with force, is what he's saying, because, uh, uh, because attitudes have to be changed, norms have to be set. Christianity has to be sort of uh, wrung and wheedled uh, from a uh, from the people. This takes time. The Nazis uh, realize they have to start with where the people are and try to bring them on to uh, uh, the Nazi uh, ways of thinking and behaving. We've taken off a
1: lot of your time today. But before we go, what are you working on now?
0: Well, I'm working on how uh, World War II memories shaped, uh, are shaped in three distinctive societies. I begin with the uh, 1943 German massacre of Italian troops on a Greek island, and uh, I do uh, begin there because it involves these three countries that I trace. Uh, how have uh, memories impacted the evolution of the European Union during the Cold War and after that? Uh, this is especially geared to trace the impact of Civilian activists on uh, on 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 state actors. In other words, there's a theory there that uh, uh, that memories are formed by this contest with uh, these parties with their separate interests. Activists from the bottom up, uh, state actors from the top down. Uh, and this, uh, this event in 1943 in September, this massacre of Italian troops has, uh, mobilized a lot of, uh, private, uh, activism, journalism, uh, as well as, uh, public activism across borders in, uh, uh, led really by German activists. It's a transnational study. Well, it sounds like it's going to be fascinating and, uh,
1: As always, I look forward to your future work. Thank you, Ryan. I appreciate that. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you, Ryan. Well, that does it for us here at the New Books Network. Once again, we've been speaking to Nathan Stoltzfus about Hitler's Compromises, Coercion, and Consensus in Nazi Germany. Hitler's Compromises is available from Yale University Press in both hard and soft cover as of 2016. So if you're interested in picking up a copy, consider using the link in the blog post. It'll help Nathan out, and it'll help us out here at the New Books Network. With that, I'd like to thank you for joining us, and hope to see you next time. Until then.